This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. And it's another zine scene installment, which people seem to like for some reason. And we're going to look at the second issue of UFO Magazine, or rather, California UFO Magazine. Now, I should be clear that we're looking at the second issue available of California UFO magazine. And this is the January, February, 1987 issue. And on the cover, it's designated volume two, number one, which makes me think, I mean, I mean, conventionally that would be the first episode of, or first episode, the first issue of the second year of a magazine. But, but everything in the, um, sort of context clues I get from reading lead me to believe this is actually the second the second issue. So if you haven't listened to our show on the first issue of UFO magazine, don't worry. It's not required to understand this one, but just be aware that UFO magazine was a lot less nuts and bolts oriented than it would later become. It's, it's much more covering the entire weird spectrum of the UFO world. So uh, let's go ahead and dive in. Okay, so let's start with the cover. Like the first issue, it's uh, it's printed in limited colors to keep costs down, and and the guts of the magazine itself are um are, are black and white. And this time, this issue, it's purple and orange, which is a very 1987 uh, color combination. Uh, the logo is uh, sort of California in tiny letters, and then UFO in a a sort of LED style. Think um. Think old calculators. Um, it's the background's purple. The word UFO is orange. And in the bottom right corner is a shadowy figure contrasted against white sort of blobby shapes that could either be aliens or they, they I don't know, they could be hands. It's, I'm not sure. It's a strange cover. And the first thing we see upon turning the page is an ad that is styled like a formal invitation. VIP parties, very important parties, is holding a series of networking parties throughout 1987. A fundraising benefit party for California UFO is tentatively scheduled for late January at Vertigo, 1024 South Grand at Olympic. Entertainment will include extraterrestrial channeling session, UFO investigators, videos, art costume contest, dance performance, dancing, networking. Cost $20. I'm not sure there's anything that fills me with, with dread more than the phrase networking parties. But this is a fundraising benefit network party, I guess, for California UFO Magazine. There's some things that I, I think are striking about this. The first is that the, the name of the um, company is VIP parties. And then in parenthesis, as you heard below that, it says very important parties. So that's what the VIP stands for. 
So the name of the company is Very Important Parties Parties, like ATM machine. A small thing, a thing that doesn't make me angry or doesn't get me upset. It's just, did nobody who loved these people catch that before this was printed? Another thing I really enjoy about this is that this is uh, apparently in print in the UFO Journal of Record. Confirmation that channeling and UFO investigation are officially entertainment, which is a useful legal dodge. And uh, I wonder if this was ever cited in any uh, any fraud cases. Well, I'm, I'm a UFO investigator, but for entertainment purposes only. It's it's very much like when um, the WWF sort of it acknowledged in court that uh, that that wrestling was entertainment rather than sports to get out of paying taxes in New Jersey. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's a fun thing, and it, it's one of these parties that I wish I could have attended because I have a feeling it was very small and awkward and strange. So there's an editorial that comes up next, and it is entitled. History Report 2525, and it is a bit strange and a bit self-congratulatory, and I, I think I'm just going to let you, uh, let you hear this for yourself. In the middle of the next-to-last decade of the 20th century, two female journalists started a magazine called California UFO, named after a region known at the time for its tolerance of unusual ideas. The subject of UFOs was clouded in sensationalism and ignorance during those years, and the people who openly admitted to believing in them were looked at askance by the rest of society. It was a subject surreptitiously read about in supermarket tabloids, not a subject many serious folk would stand behind. Those few enlightened souls who did openly accept and study the subject fell into two distinct categories, each of which attempted to keep its distance from the other. The serious investigators don't like the stories we print about the psychic UFO channels or the contactees because they're trying to rise above the stigma of being kooks in the scientific community, and such stories negate the completely objective, provable data they are bringing to light, wrote the magazine's founders at the time of their second issue. The spiritual UFO believers have a little less to lose in terms of worrying about their image or credibility with their peers, but they do complain that we concentrate too much on the hardware aspects of the phenomenon. They don't see any point in dwelling on the physical evidence UFOs may or may not leave because they feel the phenomenon is a psychic, multidimensional area that might not be consistent with our knowledge of the material world. California UFO managed to please both camps somewhat, but neither completely. The general public was even harder to win over. Groups that we thought would rally behind us because it seemed to us our interests would overlap were afraid of the stigma our magazine would cast on their own credibility. Some were just plain not interested, the magazine's founders wrote. Science fiction people, futurists, and space exploration groups told us they had worked too hard and long to gain media credibility to endanger it by associating their names with us. We were a hot potato to them because we were too far out on a limb. It was one thing to talk abstractly about extraterrestrial life as an artistic theme or an idealized future discovery, but the possibility that it might already be within our grasp of knowledge was frightening, or at least unacceptable to most people. Fifteen years later, when the mass landings started, the space beings made all such factionalism moot. They threw a big media party and invited everybody, 
The scientists, spiritualists, government and military officials, academics, science fiction fans, skeptics, metaphysicians, and anyone else who was interested. They sent a personalized invitation to California UFO with a scrawled message inside, which the founders have framed in their offices to this day. Thanks for helping to start the party. Do you have Walter Cronkite's address? What I get out of this, and apologies for that long uh, clip, but as you heard, there's no good way to sort of (laughs) trim this down. It's a very strange sort of thing, kind of a backward-looking piece of fiction using quotations from the editorial that I believe is supposed to be the editorial that we are supposed to be reading for issue number two about all of this. And and I, I think this is speculation on my part. I, I think what happened is that there was a first draft of an editorial that was about the different opinions on that first episode of UFO magazine and sort of a, a meditation on factionalism within the UFO community. And it was probably very straightforward and boring and didn't really have an angle to it. And other than most likely sounding defensive about their approach. And so they said, Vicki Cooper um, said, well, why don't I reframe this as this voice from the future looking back and quoting little bits, relevant bits of that editorial that I've decided I don't want to use. I don't know if that's how it worked, but that's sort of what I imagine happened. And I'm not sure if this entirely works as uh, as an editorial because, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I, I, I like it. But the letters to the editor certainly do reflect that um, that very interesting uh, conflict. And, and it does highlight the, the ongoing tension between ufology's attempts to be scientific on the one hand and, and other elements of the field having a more freewheeling attitude. For example, Bill Cox of Santa Barbara says this. I recommend that you make your decision from the start to be as scientific as possible and to avoid sensationalism. There are a lot of self-deluded and deluding persons out there who make unsubstantiated claims. We are to believe what they say merely because they say so. This we know, as we have correspondence going back to the late 40s. These people will put off serious contributors and supporters. On the other hand, if you go the straight academic route, with too much math and psychology and too many PhDs who pretend to be for UFO investigation when they're really out to shoot it down, they can ruin your effort. Be rational and scientific, but watch out for those people who are rational and scientific for a living because they're out to get you. I guess. In a similar vein, Leon, I want to pronounce this, Macajian of Santa Monica writes the following. I have found this magazine and the 24-hour UFO hotline to be full of fantasy. Without any careful analysis, an unknown object seen in the sky is concluded to be a UFO. Because of this, the public is being misled. If all this nonsense is really taking place, why isn't there a genuine photograph of a UFO? Anyone can just draw a picture of a flying saucer and publish it in a magazine. Even business is being made out of these absurd fictional reports. Hopefully, this fantasy will soon be replaced with unexaggerated reports. 
editor Vicky does respond to this letter, um, pointing out that when they have a larger staff and budget, they are going to be able to investigate UFO cases on their own. But until that time, they are serving as a a sort of collection point and a forum, uh, printing the findings of others with, quote, as much evidence or supporting details as exist and letting our readers judge for themselves, end quote. Um, Cooper also um, clarifies that UFO magazine, or, sorry, California UFO and the UFO contact newsline are not uh, are not connected. And she notes that this is an incorrect assumption that many readers have expressed. So, I don't know, maybe not running a huge feature on it with the person running it listed under the masthead on your staff um, was a great idea. Editor Cooper sort of might have contributed to that connection in some people's minds. Now, those two letters were kind of negative, but Keith Thompson of Mill Valley, who I am 99.9% sure is the Keith Thompson who would later write the book Angels and Aliens, he applauded the approach laid out in the first issue. Congrats on the first issue of California UFO. I like the tone you established throughout. I think success is guaranteed if you live up to that promise of being willing to explore the whole damn ball of wax. I agree, Mr. Thompson. So now we move on to some of the news stories that appeared in this issue. And one that really struck me is that there was a contact symposium. The fourth annual contact symposium was going to be held on February 27th through March 1st of um, 1987 in uh, Rancho Cordova, which is a uh, Sacramento suburb. This is how the contact symposium is described. Contact is described as an interdisciplinary forum on possibilities and problems of extraterrestrial contact, bringing together science fiction enthusiasts and anthropology experts for a meeting of the minds. Now, this just sounds fascinating and fun to me. They're, they're, the authors that were scheduled to be there were, um, were uh, Paul Anderson Greg Bear, Larry Niven, these are these are big names, as well as uh, NASA's chief biological researcher, a, a scientist named Richard Johnson. And the topics they were going to cover um, that were announced, at least at the time this went to press, were alien biology, alien cultures, world building, and how environment affects culture. I, that this this might I would I would go to this. Gosh, I would I would go to this um, all day long. So. Th- it's it's interesting that what is being discussed here in this contact symposium, which I mean, contact symposium is, is the most sort of UFO land name for an event ever, right? But this isn't a UFO event. This is sort of a collaboration between people who make a living conjuring up believable or plausible or identifiable um, alien uh, environments and getting input and interaction and um, and sort of collaboration between fiction authors and scientists who might have like things to add. This this isn't a UFO thing. Maybe that's why it's so interesting for me. Um, but uh, again, fourth annual. So this thing had been going on a while. Um, really, really cool sounding thing. Next up. We have a lawsuit. Yes, 
a lawsuit with the headline, Washington-based cause exec files suit against U.S. military. Larry W. Bryant, director of the Washington, D.C. Office of Citizens Against UFO Secrecy, has filed suit against the Departments of Defense, Army, and Air Force in response to perceived injuries following publicity efforts on behalf of cause. Filed November 13th at the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia in Alexandria, the free speech lawsuit seeks relief on two counts, stemming from an advertising campaign Bryant recently initiated in various military publications across the nation. In his suit, Bryant asserts that branches of the U.S. military were instrumental in censoring or rejecting cause ads, particularly one charging that military medics performed secret autopsies on crew members of a UFO that crashed 30 years ago. The ad also asks witnesses to step forward and aid in a freedom of information lawsuit to make the records public. Bryant, currently a writer and editor for the Pentagon-based Army news service R News, also claims that his attempts to exercise his constitutional rights led to an unsatisfactory job rating recently issued by his supervisors at R News. If left unchallenged, the official reprisal against me, taken in the form of attacks upon my job performance and professional competence, will send a negative message to all federal workers, Bryant comments. If you dare criticize government policy, expect to incur the wrath of your employer. This attitude must not prevail in a democracy. Bryant has been a Pentagon employee for the past 28 years. The Army has declined comment while the civil action is pending. Now, as you might expect, this sent me down a rabbit hole, although I think it is best that we save that rabbit hole until after the break. All right, so coming up, by the, well, actually, by the time you hear this, unless you're on the Patreon and you heard this a few days ago, by the time you hear this, when this episode drops, I will be um, on the road to Missouri for my semiannual, semiannual, semi-annual-ish, paranormal-ish road trip. And I'm going to Missouri for a number of reasons. Initially, I was going to check out Cape Girardeau, where there was apparently a UFO crash back in the 40s. But then I realized or remembered that Missouri was home for a while to Buck Nelson and his UFO gathering. And uh, I decided to go to that area in the Ozarks and check that out. I've got a stop scheduled at the State Historical Society of Missouri to look at some materials they have related to Buck Nelson's shows. And um, I'm also going to um, swing through Piedmont, which was uh, the location of all sorts of weirdness over the years. So um, that uh, a, a sort of Road trip episode is what will be coming up next. And uh, if you like the show, if you like the saucer life, and and do you want more of the sort of thing I'm doing here, you can support the show in exchange for bonus content and uh, and all sorts of stuff. Patrons, as I mentioned, get the episodes early, and there's a few pieces of bonus content every month. And this month, there's going to be a lot of fun stuff related to the trip. There's also almost a year and a half of um previously released bonus material that uh, that you'll have access to if you're interested 
you can check it out at patreon.com slash media or via the link in the show notes. And you can check out all of our regular past episodes at saucerlife.com or in your favorite podcast app. We're on uh, Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, and you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can contact us by post at Media P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. And um, now I think um, I think it's time to uh, to, to get back to uh, the, the case of Larry Bryant versus the military. But first, I, uh, I do want to say that um, I, I appreciate the kind words um, from – uh, from from you all as I uh, uh, as as we dealt with uh, with some stuff within our family uh, and the loss of our son and uh, it was very kind of you to um, to to say some very nice things uh, to me and to be very understanding about the show uh, taking a bit of a break and um, thank you for uh, for being back here with us uh, if you are which if you're hearing this you are unless you aren't. I guess. Anyway, um, back to uh, back to the uh, back to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. All right. So, like I said, this sent me down a rabbit hole, which eventually led me to Larry W. Bryant, plaintiff appellant versus Dick Cheney, Secretary of Defense, John O. Marsh Jr., Secretary, Department of the Army, Defendants Appellees, and Donald B. Rice, Secretary of Air Force, Defendant. Now, this was a case decided by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals on December 25th, oh, Christmas, 1991. Larry Bryant appeals a judgment against him after a bench trial in his action against the Secretaries of Defense and the Army. His suit sought declaratory and injunctive relief against adverse employment actions and retaliation for his attempts to expose an alleged government cover-up of visits by unidentified flying objects, or UFOs. We affirm the judgment. So, just from that at the beginning, um, the we affirm the judgment at the end, just if you're not familiar with uh, appeals cases, that means basically... Larry loses his appeal. So Bryant was described as a civilian employee of the Defense Department who wrote for the print media section of our news, the Army News Service, as the UFO magazine article described. So our news basically provided stories for newspapers that were published by companies that contracted with the Defense Department to provide local news for people living on military bases around the world. Bryant had always gotten, the the court decision talks about, always gotten job review ratings of exceptional except for his very first one, which was unsatisfactory. This was back in 1985, and as the court says, quote, the 1985 rating is the genesis of this suit. Bryant is convinced that the government has concealed evidence of UFO visits. He is the director of the Washington, D.C. Office of Citizens Against UFO Secrecy, CAUSE. In 1983, Bryant, on behalf of CAUSE, filed a civil action in district court in the District of Columbia styled Writ of Habeas Corpus Extraterrestrial. In this suit, he sought to compel the Air Force to produce the bodies of space creatures retrieved from crashed saucers. This suit was eventually dismissed, but not until it had generated a good deal of publicity. 
Now, throughout 1984 and 1985, Bryant had attempted to place classified ads in many of these R News supported newspapers. According to the court, quote, he sought information from the paper's military audience about the government's alleged cover-up of the UFO menace, end quote. In these ads, Bryant did not identify himself as a government employee or anything like that. He wasn't abusing his position. Some were printed. Some ads were printed. Others were rejected. Now, the rejections kind of irritated Bryant, and in one case, he wrote a letter to the public affairs officer at Fort Dix complaining about the fact that the base newspaper would not run his ad. The recipient, according to the court, quote, considered the letter rude and threatening. Now, all of these activities on Bryant's part coincided with editorial changes at R News designed to improve the quality of stories. A new layer of editorial oversight was added, not because of Bryant. This was a just an organizational-wide change. And this is what led to Bryant's unsatisfactory rating, which was due both to his writing quality and his attitude toward the new editors. With coaching, Bryant's next review reflected improvement and the unsatisfactory rating from his 1985 employment review was expunged from his personnel file. Nonetheless, Bryant filed his lawsuit in 1987, claiming that he was being discriminated against and his rights were being violated because he was unfairly singled out because of his views about UFOs and his attempts to entice members of the military to assist him in his Freedom of Information Act efforts. The lower courts had rejected this claim, and initially, the appeals court affirmed that rejection because, among other things, quote, federal employees aggrieved by personnel actions are limited to the remedies provided by the Civil Service Reform Act, end quote. Thus, a constitutional claim of free speech being violated was the wrong sort of venue for Bryant's concerns. Now, the Supreme Court kicked this back to the Fourth Circuit because during this time, uh, there had been other cases not really about Bryan's at all, but touching on the topic of whether or not um, whether or not federal employees could sue over uh, civil liberties issues in the course of their employment. There was a case in 1998 that said that established a precedent that, yes, this this could be done. So the case is kicked back to the appeals court for a a redo, which I'm not sure, but I am almost positive Bryant um, proclaimed as as uh, the Supreme Court upholding his claims, which absolutely wasn't the case. So this new appeals ruling emerges, the one that we're looking at now. And they ruled that the lower court rejecting Brian's claims was correct. And it's again affirmed because there were two other reasons for the rejection of his claims that did not rest on whether or not a disgruntled bureaucrat could use the constitution as a defense against bad job reviews. The first was that Bryant lacked standing to seek the declaratory and injunctive relief that he sought. Precedent, a a case called Lyon, uh, states clearly that there has to be a real injury that could be relieved by the court, not simply the potential for an injury, as the court explained. 
We agree with the appellees that Bryant lacks standing under Lyons. Bryant's advertisements have been printed in the civilian enterprise newspapers. His unsatisfactory rating for 1985 has been expunged. The author of that rating, Captain Surface, has been reassigned. And Bryant's current supervisors have given him stellar evaluations. In essence, Bryant is now asking us for a declaration that an expunged employment evaluation was unlawful and for an injunction against adverse treatment that he can show no indication will recur. The injunctive and declaratory powers of the federal court are broad and vital to justice, but Article 3 simply precludes their empty use to enjoin the conjectural or declare the fully repaired broken. Basically, the court does not have the power or really any reason to say, you know that situation that was resolved to your benefit? That was a messed up situation and they should have fixed it which they did, so hooray. There's another reason for rejecting Bryant's claim as well. Though we affirm, because of the constraints of Article 3, we would be remiss if we did not note that Bryant's claims were fully tried and found wanting on their merits. The district court found that Bryant failed to prove that his protected speech was a substantial or motivating factor prompting the adverse employment action. The court then went on to find that even had Bryant made such a showing, the defendants had satisfied their burden of proving that the same action would have been taken notwithstanding the protected First Amendment conduct. In other words, Larry Bryant got a bad performance review because he was bad at his job. Then he got better at his job, and they improved his job performance reviews to reflect that. The UFOs had nothing to do with it. They had enough documentation and enough proof to demonstrate that the unsatisfactory rating he was given was because of his actual job performance, which, you know, is uh, kind of disheartening if you're Larry Bryant, I would imagine, although, you know, it's the UFO field. The, the court was probably in on it. Now, that earlier action that had generated a good deal of publicity in the court's words, the uh, habeas corpus extraterrestrial ploy, it was covered by uh, the UPI wire service on July 14th, 1983. Citizens Against UFO Secrecy filed a writ of habeas corpus extraterrestrial to force the government to release more than a dozen ETs supposedly found in crashed flying saucers the group's director said on Thursday. We want the bodies, said Larry Bryant, a 45-year-old Alexandria writer, but we'll take whatever information we can get, including whether the bodies are dead or alive. Bryant, who heads the Washington, D.C.-based group, he says is an umbrella organization for various UFO groups, said he filed the petition to get more information about the bodies reportedly found in saucer crashes, most of them in New Mexico. What our petition aims to do, simply, is to perform a citizen's disarrest to make the government account formally and fully for their capture of one or more UFO crewmen that have had the misfortune of falling into U.S. military hands. I would like to change, you know, the the legal sort of label of of a writ of habeas corpus to a citizen's disarrest. I, I think that has a nice sort of silly tone to it. Now, the evidence on which Bryant was basing these claims was uh, something we're going to have to 
look at at some point, but it impinges slightly on being a potential Roswell episode, and that is the the so-called Guy Hotel memo. Um, if you know about the Guy Hotel memo, you might know about this and are perhaps rolling your eyes or stroking your chin thoughtfully. Uh, for everybody else, it's one of briefly one of the many uh, documents that have surfaced from time to time around the whole Roswell thing that is mired in controversy. So. We'll be covering that at some point. Actually, I'm making a list of all these sort of episode topics for the coming months based on this issue of UFO Magazine. It's great. So Bryant did this a lot. In 2000, he filed a lawsuit against the governor of Virginia, James S. Gilmore III, in which he alleged that the governor's administration was ignoring the public safety issue of the ongoing alien incursion and failing, quote, to identify, assess, and repel this clandestine invasion within Virginia. Indeed, Governor Gilmore, quote, refused even to acknowledge the existence of the invasion, end quote. According to the Washington Post, Bryant sought the following actions as relief for this horrible dereliction of duty by the governor of Virginia. Convene a special state grand jury under the Alexandria court's jurisdiction to investigate the scope, impact, perpetrators, and methodology of this clandestine invasion. Appoint a state police task force to analyze and publish all available intelligence on the subject. Direct the Virginia National Guard to establish and operate a quick reaction force to impel these non-human, humanoid, alien entities yet to be apprehended and brought to justice. Afford to invasion victims the same victims' rights counseling, comfort, and protective measures as any other victim of criminal activity. Okay, as you might imagine, this went nowhere. Bryant died in 2020, and his papers are now in the possession of the Woodson Research Center at Rice University, which is currently in the process of of processing them. Uh, I didn't think those words through correctly. It looked right when I was typing it out. So that was a bit of a rabbit hole. Um, And I think an episode dedicated to, to citizens against UFO secrecy in general should be in our near future. So I will, I will pencil that in. I, I, I like things like this because because often you have a, a very not always but often you can find a good paper trail of things like appellate court rulings that give you some insight to with which you can compare you know what the the courts thought of something as opposed to the the press release spin of we've got the killer lawsuit that's gonna I don't know bring us the alien uh, the alien bodies so so definitely we're we're going to be getting into cause and and more Larry Bryant and I think what's his name Peter Gersten was part of that as well so we'll be getting into that in the future so back to the magazine in one of the opinion columns Bill Moore of whom we've heard a bit in recent episodes had a piece that was critical of contact deism entitled the skeptic challenges space brother messages with space brother of course being encased within sarcasm laden quotation marks one of the most curious sidelights of modern ufo research especially in recent years is the alleged psychic channeling of messages or contacts from presumed space brothers or similar ufo connected entities to or through human beings 
Literally thousands of individuals from all walks of life have claimed such experiences. In most cases, the alleged communications are said to be for the general good of mankind. Many fall into the categories of mystical, religious, or semi-religious experiences. Almost invariably, those who accept the content of such messages as being valid communications from extraterrestrials do so solely on philosophical rather than scientific grounds. So it's something, a strand of ufology that was there from almost the beginning that uh, has thousands of claims of such experiences floating around, but it's just a curious sidelight to the real scientific rigorous investigation of UFOs. Later on, Moore engages with us in a thought experiment about contactee style messages. Next, imagine a malevolent race of highly advanced aliens whose sole purpose, for whatever reasons, is to completely conquer and enslave planet Earth. There are, of course, a number of ways to go about this, the messiest of which is wanton wholesale destruction. More subtle, however, would be to quietly deceive a certain segment of the native human population into believing that aliens are really benevolent space brothers who have come to save the planet and lead the human population into a utopian new age, and knowing that a significant portion of the planet's population is already expecting their world to be saved by a second coming, an expectation of many Christians. What better way to accomplish such a takeover than to stage just such an event at precisely the right moment? thus setting the conditioned faithful effectively against the heathen of the world who would oppose such a move. Hmm. That's interesting. What would it be like if a group of people decided to use a particular brand or style or viewpoint about alien actions to deceive a certain segment of the the naive human population? How would that go, Bill? Any idea? Any experience with using UFO stories to deceive part of the population? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, being a little bit snarky there, but uh, come on, Bill. So also, I think it's interesting that, um, that this idea of, of reconstructing or, or constructing a, um, a, a fake second coming is something that, uh, that did show up a little bit, um, hints of it. In, in some of the, the John Lear-ish type things that were influenced by Paul Benowitz's stories. Um, they also, these ideas also sort of prefigure uh, Serge Monast's Project Blue Beam ideas about a, a holographically constructed uh, series of events and, uh, and, and things like that. So, um, it, it's just it, it just jumped out at me a little bit that uh, Bill Moore might be telling on himself just a little bit um, in in this column. There's also a uh, a Q and A with Uriel of the Unarius Society, which we will save for an upcoming episode on Unarius. Yes, it is it is on the list, and yes, there is a list, and yes. I do remember to look at it from time to time. And there are also in this issue some firsthand contactee accounts as, pro- as was promised in the first issue of UFO magazine. And what I like about these is they're like a page each and they provide a forum for contact experiencers who 
might not have had enough to say to support a book or whatnot, um, to be able to share their interesting stories nonetheless. And the one that stood out to me in this issue was the story of two women, Judy Wolcott and Bonnie Meyer. Just listen to this introduction. Judy Wolcott and Bonnie Meyer are just your normal middle American women, two cheerful types busily living in that normal middle American town of Menasha, Wisconsin. Judy and Bonnie are contactees. They share an intense closeness that transcends the usual bonds of friendship, claiming to be jointly experiencing the instruction and guidance of a 20-year-old, Earth-time, extraterrestrial woman named Mon from the planet Serac. They've been abducted by her and other ETs at least seven times, Judy says. She tells their story. So, the planet Serac. So, Serac... Um, Serac could refer to a few things. Um, one is a city in Iran. Uh, one is a mountain in South Korea. Serac is a surname ranked currently at 94,730th place in popularity in the United States, according to namecensus.com. I don't think any of these are where the name Serac for the planet came from. Um, Serac was an ancient revered leader among the people of Vulcan on Star Trek. And it was Serac who introduced the philosophy of, of logic, um, as a way to, um, help the Vulcan people overcome their, their violent divisions. Um, I, I think, I think that's what we're looking at here. So how does Judy describe herself and Bonnie in terms of their, their perspective on UFOs and UFO belief? Oh, we're the girls who boldly used to say that if an alien landed in our backyard, we'd invite him in for coffee. Sure we would. We used to ride around after UFO meetings till 2 or 3 a.m. chasing UFOs. Of course, we also found every radio tower light helicopter and low-flying aircraft in the area, but we really did see hundreds of authentic craft. Amazing how if you look hard enough for a UFO, sometimes you might just find one. So where does the contactee angle come in? Mon, our space friend, has given us the go-ahead to work with you. With others, she's advised extreme caution. We're very cautious about people juicing up a story to sell more publications, and the things that have happened to us need no help. So what has happened to them? Well, it's the 1980s, and it just wouldn't be right and it wouldn't make sense if there wasn't some kind of abductionist element to this contact story. Persons we refer to as bug people were the first to abduct us about 10 years ago. As I write this, I'm poring over books of notes and scribbles and tapes from hypnotic sessions. We go to a sympathetic hypnotist in Milwaukee. One night, when we were returning from a session in another city 35 miles from here, Bonnie and I smelled cinnamon. Strange. I had stopped to buy a bag of Cheetos. My car runs on gas and I on Cheetos. And as we were driving down the highway, I rolled up the bag and placed it on the floor. But then I suddenly wanted more Cheetos. And I saw a fog all around me. Not the car, just me. Bonnie said, gee, that's funny. We just left Fond du Lac, and here we are at the filling station in Oshkosh already. When I got home, my husband was teasing me, asking about our long ride. It was 2 a.m. We'd lost one and a half hours. 
my car runs on gas and I on Cheetos. It is, it is almost poetic in its simplicity and indeed in its truth. So Mon, their friend Mon, this is interesting because you've got this, this contactee sort of thing. They've got their, their space friend, but they're abducted by the bug people. But we don't really hear much about that, but we do hear more about Mon. Months later, Mon told us that the cinnamon smell was to alert us that something was about to happen. We had been abducted and were taken for a ride on the craft. When Mon first started working with us about 10 years ago, we got a lot of good aerial shows from the craft. It's boomerang-shaped. The lights on the tip of its wings are red and green. The rest, as many as they want to use, are only for the purpose of camouflage to make people think they're airplanes. The craft has two levels. The first time I remember seeing Mon, I was standing on board and saw this beautiful blonde girl and a tall, good-looking fellow at her side. I remember wondering why they kept looking at me and not saying anything. It's taken quite a lot of hypnotic sessions, a lot of quiet time, and a lot of long sessions with Mon to piece together all this for you. We had some sessions with her that lasted as long as eight hours. We were not the only people she works with. Mon is a teacher who is here to help train us to work with people of Earth during the upcoming hard times. That's why when Bonnie and I are on board the craft, we never see each other. We're both in different areas being taught different things. Mon is now using telepathy and is coming through Bonnie. Some call it channeling. She says it's like reading a ticker tape. I carry on a conversation with Mon and Bonnie is the mouthpiece. She's often told us that any time we work with aliens or people in spirit form, we should protect ourselves from negative forces by always using the white light of Christ for protection. We asked how to use the white light, and she said just to think it. Believe me, it works. We are always asking Mon just when we will get a ride that we can remember, or when we can meet her in the flesh and just sit and talk. We're ready. We know we are. But it's back to our hypnotist for more sessions. I want to hear more about the bug people, but instead we get Judy talking a bit more about the philosophical aspects of her experiences. We thought we were ready for all this. After all, we've studied flying saucers and life in space for about 12 years now. We've worked with other people from other planets who look nothing like us. The barroom scene in Star Wars best explains how we all differ. The soul is the same. Only the outer body looks different. But the soul of every person is unique, like a person's fingerprint. They have what they call a soul computer, and all they have to do is check the computer to get the information they need. Bonnie and I just happened to have made a commitment to all this in a past life, so here we are. I had a hologram of a UFO appear in my kitchen while I was on the phone with Bonnie one day. Every time we get bored with it all, they do something to spark our interest, or to say, don't give up. We're definitely working together, learning together, laughing and crying together. There are a lot of things we cannot share because some who might get a copy of this magazine aren't ready for all this. No, indeed, we are not. So I, I tried to do a little checking about uh, about Judy and Bonnie, and there isn't a lot out there. There's a news story from the uh, the, the newspaper in Green Bay, Wisconsin, where they, they basically tell their story and emphasize, quote, we are not kooks. And there's another interesting tie-in between um, Judy Wolcott and the supposed UFO crash 
in Kingman, Arizona. Uh, she claimed to have um, had letters that, or, or that that it's it's a complicated story. But she has a, another little moment in the sun beyond her um, beyond her her appearance here. And uh, gosh, I'm going to have to put a Kingman episode on the schedule now, aren't I? So um, we will hear more about uh, Judy Woodruff in the future. So we've got this section of the magazine that has contactee stories. And in the same vein, we've got a a feature that was in the last uh, issue called messages, which is basically pull quotes from prominent space beings uh, conveyed to us through uh, through their human contacts. Um, the, the first one they list is a group message from the Council of Planets that was directed um, directly at UFO Magazine or California UFO Magazine. This message is for the magazine in California. We of the Confederation greet the people of Earth. We are here in peace to help you with your problems on the planet. Now is the time for the awakening of all the souls who have come to planet Earth. These souls have chosen to come to help in the time of disaster and turmoil. The awakening is upon us. We are here to help all that we can. The easiest way for this to be accomplished is to have people born on the planet as they can more easily understand the problems of Earth. We who are born on other planets cannot understand your problems. We cannot understand why you cannot live in harmony with nature. You must learn to live at one with the universe if you are to survive. Many will read this message and it will mean nothing. Those of you who hear this message and understand will realize that you are the ones who were born on planet Earth to help in its time of trouble. We will sign off now with love and light, as always. I find it very interesting that um, we have an alien, a space brother, conveying a message that's a bit different from a lot of space brother messages we get usually um george damsky and 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 all those other guys uh their their planets venus saturn clarion wherever they had gone through a period of warfare and disunity like the earth is currently going through like vulcan went through before serac's teachings about logic showed them a better way um but 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 this guy he's just like we don't get you if if you're not from earth Earth doesn't make any sense at all. Listen to the people from Earth. They will, they will help you. There's another one of these, these short sort of pull quote messages uh, from Munka, who is part of uh, Ashtar's circle of pals. And, and this irked me to no end. My last life upon the planet Earth was lived in the Peruvian age. At that time, I was known as Viracocha. My life in Peru was a very interesting life. We had our problems, as did all the countries which were pioneering and building the empires. To this day, you have ruins to prove the magnificent, unbelievable tasks performed in the building of irrigation systems, the wall, homes, temples. Okay, the the irksome thing here is the Peruvian age. There, There was no Peruvian age. There were a number of states and societies and empires in that region from the Inca to the, to the Shavin to, to, you know, there, it's, it's not just one thing that this is, this is the, the kind of misrepresentation and misunderstanding of, of, of ancient cultures that, that is, that, that is, that is pervasive. And I expect Manka to do better. 
Um, what also irks me about this entire column is that there's no citations, just names and and dates. Uh, Munka, 1985. Where were these things published? Where were they written? Who did they channel these messages through? I want to know more about this guy calling himself the ruler of Mars or Voltra of Venus. It's not. Um, it's not particularly. <laughs> It's, it's not particularly helpful. Why am I looking at this as a serious research tool to find out anything? But um, I don't know. It's my inner historian coming out. Where's the footnotes to this? Okay. Uh, getting to the end here, we've got their gossip column. And, uh, and, and this is a longish thing, but I want you to get the full effect of this. This is a page of of little things that they said were hot bits of gossip and 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 underground rumblings in the UFO scene and some of these things are yes I knew that some of these things are hmm that's interesting and some of these things are Eesh, that's kind of dumb and I I assume if I were to ask any one of you um we would all have different ways of categorizing each of these gossip bullet points um, as, you know, being obvious, interesting, or dumb. Did you hear about the mysterious man who appeared at memorial services for Challenger astronaut Ellison Onizuka, presenting his widow with the actual flag the astronaut had taken with him into space? Air Force officials in attendance almost passed out. That's probably because if such a thing actually happened, it is the most tasteless sort of joke I can possibly imagine. Did you hear that the awesome security surrounding the top-secret U.S. bomber which crashed in mid-California a while back was so impenetrable for very different reasons than the ones publicized? Did you hear that some people believe Jesus' home planet is Venus? Yes. Yes, I have. Did you hear about the conspiracy between hostile aliens and the CIA to take over the world? Yes, but I would like to see a, a sort of novel about a CIA slash MJ-12 turf war. Did you hear about the physics professor who believes that aliens may resemble fish more than any other life form? Did you hear about the reporter who was a Douglas Adams fan who thought he would ask professors what they think about the ideas presented in So Long and Thanks for All the Fish? I have a feeling that's where that story emerged from. Did you hear that the ETs and Close Encounters were modeled after data from an actual case? That a prominent UFO investigator was set up on false charges and jailed for being too open with his UFO info? Did you hear that according to the theology of some ETs, the Christian trinity is actually protons, electrons, and neutrons? Did you hear that the string of earthquakes in California is a direct result of underground nuclear testing and ETs have expressed their disapproval to the authorities here on Earth? That the late George Adamski contactee was a stooge for corporate fascists? I really like that they slipped this one in there. No snark of any kind. I love that. Or that America's top UFO debunker is a CIA operative? That field reporters for ABC TV plan to join a UFO entrepreneur on a trip to South America in hopes of catching a UFO landing on tape and conducting an interview with an ET? Did you hear that Earthlings were told to quit messing around in outer space until things are healed on Earth? Did you hear that some of these rumors might be true? Actually, those rumors were more fun 
than I thought. And and I, I didn't have an opinion on all of them, but some of them, as you heard, I did have an opinion on. So we're going to close this out with the um, the classified ads and, and one in particular. Galacticom Planetary Communique presents the messages of Ashtar, commander of the galactic fleets and representative of the Confederation of Free Planets. Editor Carol Hall, a.k.a. Alwyn, says she is the designated spokesperson on this planet for Ashtar and the Confederation. Galacticom is specifically designed to keep the populace posted on special communications from the command and increase awareness of the subtle effects of mankind's collective energies on the more etherealized ecosystems of our planet. Contact Carol Hall, Galacticom, P.O. Box 392, Menlo Park, California, 94026. First of all, Galacticom is is clearly probably the name of a computer game company that lasted from about 1988 to about 1992 that had one game that you loved that you can't remember the name of, but you can remember every other aspect about it. Uh, That's just what that name Galacticom sort of conjures for me. But uh, the point of, of playing you that ad was, was basically just, it's an illustration of how in this age where Ashtar was represented in the the published press mostly by uh, by Tuella, uh, the the sweet little old lady channeling Ashtar. You've got this person out there saying, "No, I'm the representative of Ashtar." So a number of of bootleg Ashtars running around, which I always find fun. So this second issue of UFO magazine is, is, is very much like the first. And there are some, some big stories in there that we didn't touch because they're, they're going to be, they're, they're, they're part of, of bigger episodes that may come along down, uh, down the line. So I, I don't want you to get the impression that, uh, that it's, it's just weird contactee stories and pull quotes and classified ads. But uh, there, there were stories. There's this Brazilian case that's spanning a few issues that we're going to look at you know, on its own more in depth at some point. Um, the Tuella Q&A, like I mentioned. Um, but also there's this, um, there's this sense that, um, that the magazine is still finding its way, which makes sense because it's the second issue. But they seem committed to this idea that you can examine all the different aspects of this and give um, give page space to a wide variety of opinions and that this is the best way to do it. And this is what a good UFO magazine should do. As we throughout this year continue looking at these early issues of UFO magazine, we're going to try to sense when that changes and why. But for now, let's just enjoy the fact that, you know, there were some very sweet ladies from Wisconsin who had a friend from a planet named after a Star Trek character. Thank you for listening. And uh, send in your questions and comments via the usual channels, social media, email, and I'll, I'll address those next time. It had been so long since the, uh, the last episode that um, I, I didn't have a, my list of questions from the, the, the Victor episode. But um, yeah, I, I think that's fine. Um, 
but we'll get back on that uh, that habit of uh, of addressing those. So again, thanks for listening. Our associate producer is Simpson J Hanover the Third, and the Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies and each other. Rest in peace, Jerry Springer. I spent way too much time watching your television show back in the 1990s. Thank you.